0: Hey, this is Julia Romero with an episode of Historically Geeking, a podcast where we get to talk some history, specifically 20th century America. For today's episode, we're going to take a look into the rebirth of the Ku Klux Klan during the 1920s. But before we can even discuss the rebirth, we first have to look at the origins of this hateful organization that came to be and still exists today. So the story of the KKK is actually a little funny just because they're founded solely on this trend of secret societies that just ran rampant during the 19th century so during the 1890s and up until like the 1930s this whole time was called the golden age of fraternalism and when we think of fraternalism most times we might conjure up the picture of a frat house you know All of these students enrolled into this whole organization, being together, being for each other, and that's really what social clubs were. So in 1866, the KKK was formed by ex-Confederate soldiers in Pulaski, Tennessee. Now the Civil War plays a huge role as to why the KKK was founded. So in 1865, on June 19th, we get the emancipation of two million African Americans that were once enslaved peoples. And now they're going to be integrating into American society. However, that's not gonna be done with open and welcoming arms as we know. So in 1866, Republicans win the election and create the Freedmen's Bureau. The Freedmen's Bureau, like the purpose of it, was to offer former slaves essential items like food, clothes, advice as to how to get a footing on American civilian life because now you have two million people who are now allowed to integrate into society not necessarily expected to because they are still deemed inferior but they have the right to now be people. The transformation of the KKK from a social club to what we now know as a terrorist group it's, it's interesting because you know, originally they might not have started as this racist group with racist intent and motives they might have just coincidentally been ex-confederate soldiers they were but they might have all just shared the commonality that they hated the idea of losing slavery so racist behind the closet until they have a motive until they have a purpose one such as the reconstruction acts so that might have given this group the motivation they needed to act on the racist thought Reconstruction was an era of recovery so it lasted from 1863 to 1877 and this was post-Civil War and actually towards the end of Civil War and post so it literally was just trying to remedy what happened during the Civil War the nation trying to fix itself the economy and the social tension between the South and the North the country literally split in two 2 million people were then integrated into society. You know, it was a vast change for everyone. So some main things that really seemed to upset the white South were the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments. And with these new amendments now in place, that also meant the right to vote for African Americans. However, that along with just general progression that was being made gave the KKK motive to create an intimidation and terror campaign. So what they sought to do was to scare Republicans because they supported you know, the black community and just general progressive thought. They wanted to scare them and African Americans into voter suppression so that they, the white supremacists, could remain in control. So they killed hundreds, even thousands of people who went against their own justification for white power. There's a really interesting quote, a really eye-opening quote, actually, from W.E.B. Du Bois, who was a black civil rights activist, and he even can go back and refer to the time of Reconstruction and how it's taught. And his quote is that what white Southerners feared far more than black failure was black success. And that just is a great quote because it really does show that they did have a hand in the political realm and that the white South did fear that you know the black community could make change that would alter you know the white man's life overall, the South was just terrifying, and white supremacy existed in schools. it existed in local government, in state government. It got so bad that the federal government had to intervene with the enforcement acts of 1870 and 1871. and these acts just aimed to protect the black vote. also in 1871, we get the Ku Klux Act. So this is an act that was authorized for Ulysses S. Grant and the government basically said that he could intervene with military force against the KKK and whatever horrible acts they had seemed to committed by then. So in 1882, however, the Supreme Court ruled that act to be unconstitutional. However, Reconstruction was already over by then and the KKK of that time, the first wave, had gone dormant. Alright, so now we get to get into the good stuff. The most known era of the KKK, which is the second wave that was sparked in 1915 with D.W. Griffith's film Birth of a Nation. The film itself is something. It's really eye opening to watch it. It's a three hour silent film. It's in black and white, and you know, there's captions to read and everything, those little clip cards. But It's really eye-opening to see the perception of African Americans during that time period, you know, post-Civil War, and that's even after, like a good while after the Civil War. This is in 1915 that we're talking, and they were still painting the African American in a negative light. And by negative light, I mean Klansmen and Birth of a Nation were working where they were using the rape myth and the stereotype of the African American as being crude and lazy. There's a scene in the film where they have to go to court and there is just... Black males in the courtroom, they're not really dressed appropriately. I mean, they're sitting in tables with their feet on the desk. They are eating fried chicken. They're just talking and laughing amongst themselves. There's one man who's portrayed to be drinking alcohol in the courtroom. There's another scene where, you know, the rape myth is really justified or it's attempted to be justified. And the rape myth is that white women are subject to be prey. For the black male and that's seen in this film so in the movie there is a character flora and gus who is supposed to be an african-american who's now freed except he's he's an actor in blackface but there's a scene where he wants to marry flora and she rejects him and he starts to follow her and he starts to chase after her so much so that she decides to jump off a cliff rather than be raped so She commits death because it is the only option that she sees available. So, of course, after seeing a scene like that, after seeing a film like that, it and, you know, if you don't seek information afterwards and really get educated on the subject, you'll believe what you're seeing. You're going to take it without a single grain of salt. You're just going to believe it as is. And that is what so many people who saw this film did. And these films just romanticized the KKK as heroes for saving the white woman, for saving white supremacy and preserving it and keeping the black community down. So what's really ironic about Birth of a Nation is the foreword. So at the beginning of the film there is this plea for the arts of the motion picture and it's extremely ironic because its message says that the movie is not intended to offend but rather Educate and correct a wrong in history, implying that whatever actually happened in history and the Union winning on fair grounds was wrong, that the South in some way was betrayed. And the film itself is really interesting because you see the white victim versus the black enemy. So in the film, you know, Reconstruction happens, emancipation happens, however, The white become oppressed in the process, so much so that they're the ones who aren't allowed to go to the ballots because the black community is saying that they can't. Sounds really familiar. It's just that the victims are switched. So compared to Ulysses S. Grant, who in the 1880s and 70s had said, you know, the KKK is wrong. We shouldn't be supporting them. You know what? Let's actually get enforcement acts that tell me I can interfere with the military's help versus someone like Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson got a private screening of this film. He saw Birth of a Nation and applauded it. He actually said that the film was like writing history with lightning, that his only regret is that it is also terribly true. I mean, if you get someone as credible, who's supposed to be as credible as the leader of an entire nation, of course, they're going to believe them you know, the people of America, the people who saw this film, didn't seek out the education, didn't seek out to learn any more on the subject. They watched the film and they understood that the black man was the enemy while the KKK was a hero. And the funny thing about the KKK in the second wave in the 20s, I mean, in 1925 alone, 50,000 people in Washington have a Klan parade. That's only compared to the other 4 million Americans who pledge allegiance to the Klan. This was just in the 20s. There's a huge boom of membership of joining that group. So the Klan is reborn and it just runs in the 20s. It just takes off. The second wave of the KKK is really interesting just because They're kind of copycats. They really do mimic pop culture with the hoods and the burning of the cross. Those things are only portrayed by Thomas Dixon and D.W. Griffith. So the first wave didn't even dress like that. They had masks or they didn't want anyone to find out who they were. There was this sense of being anonymous. The second wave has that too, but it just really mimics that cult feeling that the clan brings to the party. After the second wave, There was no dormant period. It just evolved. I mean, now people get called out on social media and everything. I mean, it even erupted into the 60s and 70s. But this third wave, I guess you could say, was very violent. You know, the second wave is still incredibly violent. But there was a different kind of violence for the third wave in the 60s and 70s. And that is with bombings. I mean, the Birmingham church where there was four little girls who were killed. But... It just shifted into this ongoing thing, and the Klan still exists today, and white supremacy does as well. I mean, civil rights in terms of segregation and Jim Crow laws, they legally ended in the 60s with the 1964 Civil Rights Act, but this idea of equal is equal, it's still not the case. Yeah, sure, um, a black man and a white man can you know, go to the same place, get the same job, doesn't necessarily mean there is full equity there. Because, I mean, if you look at incidences like the death of George Floyd, that was a huge, huge event of 2020 that caused protests like all over and a lot of advocating all over the country for the Black Lives Matter movement. That just ties into this subject as well because Reconstruction and Black Lives Matter are essentially the same thing. Reconstruction was an attempt that is taught in many schools, it's a failure. However, it's not a failure if it was never allowed to fully flourish because it was intercepted by organizations such as the KKK. So that's just the point I wanted to bring up. Black Lives Matter is merely just a continuation, as is white supremacy, but the two are going to combat. And you know what? Hopefully with time, this just gets resolved because nobody is born hating anyone into this world. It's a learned behavior, and that's very evident in these organizations.